Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for April 14th, 2019. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, Misunderstood Savior. can smell Jerusalem. It's been 35 years since my first trip, but that smell has been buried in my head for 35 years. Every once in a while, out in the streets or in a restaurant or in a crowd, there will be a whiff of it. I don't know what it is, but it's a smell that takes me back to the streets of Jerusalem. Lots of interesting sights and sounds and smells in Jerusalem. It's a beautiful, interesting place to go. If you have a chance, don't pass it up. The stone winding alleyways in the old city, shops of leather and woven goods, and all of those hastily made olive wood baby Jesuses, open air markets and fresh pita bread. The first time I was there as a junior in college, we stopped in Jericho outside of Jerusalem. I was with some college friends, and we jumped off the bus. We were there to see the sycamore, you know, the actual sycamore tree that Zacchaeus climbed when Jesus came through town. And uh, we looked across the street, and there was a woman there making bread, and I had no idea what it was. It was round, flat bread that they called pita bread. You know, I grew up in Clinton, South Carolina, and I had no idea what pita bread was. But it was wonderful, pita bread in Jericho. Open-air markets in the city of Jerusalem. Diesel smoke at the bus terminal that's just below the garden tomb, that beautiful picturesque scene that you see of the garden tomb, and below it is the busiest bus terminal in the city of Jerusalem. Fresh air from out on the Mount of Olives. Wow. That smell is buried deep, but occasionally I still get a whiff of it. And I can be back in a moment at the Sheep Gate, or in the Jerusalem, in the Jewish quarter in the old city. The smell of Jerusalem is evocative and mysterious. Mostly I can smell Jerusalem because of the tension in the air. There's always tension in the air in Jerusalem, then and now. Can you imagine all of the smells coming together on that day as 200,000 pilgrims came into the city for the Feast of Passover? for the celebration. They had come together in their caravans. They had all spent the night on the road somewhere. Nobody stayed in a Holiday Inn Express. Can you imagine the smells of the city as 200,000 people descended on that place with their beast of burden and with their beast that that they brought to offer for sacrifice and all of the smells as the, the, the temple burned those offerings? Can't imagine. And the smell in the air of tension Then and now, there's always been tension in Jerusalem. I want to be quick to say I've been to Jerusalem two different times in the city. Many times I've never been afraid. Jerusalem is safer on a day-to-day basis than most American cities, if you look at the uh, actual data. Uh, So I'm not afraid of being in Jerusalem, but you can smell the tension in the air. It's always there, political tension, religious tension, uh, historical tension. You can just feel it in the air. And when Jesus came into town, that tension was there because even then the air was charged. Jerusalem, whose name ironically means foundation of peace, 
Jerusalem. You hear the word shalom, salim, salam, peace, Islam. That word means peace, Jerusalem, the foundation of peace. That city, ironically named for peace, has always been a city of interesting tensions. And so Jesus came into the city that day, and there were 200,000 people there. And surely the Romans had brought more troops in to make sure that the city was safe on that day and that there were no insurrections, and that there were no rebellions, that there were no uprisings. And so there were many more people in the city that day who came to celebrate, and there were many more troops in the city that day. And so the tensions were high. And then someone said the word Messiah. They say he's the Messiah. Can you imagine that word spreading through a mob, a crowd, frenzy with passion and fervor for Passover, and the word Messiah goes through the air like electricity. The people have been waiting for a Messiah, someone who would save them from the Romans, the hated Romans, the oppression of Rome, the occupation of Rome. We need someone to overthrow We need someone to rescue. We need someone to save us from them. Messiah. The word went through the air with a frenzy. For centuries, Christians have called it the triumphal entry. And our understanding, the typical understanding, is that Jesus finally was recognized for who he was. The King, the Savior, the Messiah. He's come to town triumphant. And finally the people understood and they worshipped and they bowed down and they brought their palms and they worshipped. And we say the tragedy is that the people so quickly misunderstood, so quickly turned their backs, so quickly became fickle. And within a week they had chosen a common criminal named Barabbas over Jesus. The triumph was that they understood and the tragedy was that they turned on him. But let's think a little bit closer about that. Maybe the triumph was the tragedy. Maybe how they understood him was the tragedy. The word Messiah began as a whisper, but it shot through that anxious crowd at the speed of misunderstanding. Messiah, our Messiah, every wrongly conceived notion of salvation and power, of domination and victory, was hoisted upon a simple carpenter from Nazareth. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes to defeat the Romans, our enemy. Blessed is the one who comes to fulfill our expectations. Blessed is the one who comes to give us power to win our triumph. You understand that maybe that triumph was the tragedy. They didn't understand what he was about then. And I'm not sure we still understand what he is about. Jesus was a common carpenter with a simple message. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Love yourself may not be such a simple message to practice, but it was a simple message to preach. And Jesus had preached it, and the people had heard the message. But that day in Jerusalem, they misunderstood. Messiah, 
He's come to save us. He is our Messiah. The people forgot his simple message, and their mouths watered with victory. Their eyes saw the stars of triumph over a Roman tyrant. Their ears tingled with the words which someone had one time heard Jesus say, Don't think I have come to bring peace. No, I have come to bring a sword. Jesus said that. And they heard that word ringing in their ears. Someone heard it as he came into town, and they said the word Messiah. And in an instant, they made of him their hero, their contender, their God. Kathleen Norris, in her book, Amazing Grace, A Vocabulary of Faith, writes about idolatry. And she says this, It seems that many people cannot give up the illusion of possessing another person. The word idea is related to the word idol. And the idea of a person becomes more important, more potent than the actual living creature. It is much safer to love an idol than a real person who is capable of surprising you, loving you, and demanding love in return. You see, the day Jesus walked into Jerusalem, the people made of him an idol. Their idea of what God was supposed to do for them. It was a triumph, but a tragic one. In zeal to make him Messiah, they forgot his message. In fervor to make him king, they forgot his difficult call. In the idolatry of making him their idea, they forgot his ideals. What a tragedy. I think it might be the greatest irony in the history of all religion, that the empire that crushed Jesus, the Prince of Peace, 300 years later made Christianity its state religion. Rome killed Jesus out of their fear of him, and 300 years later, they made him their state religion. So Jesus, as it were, sanctioned over the years, over the centuries, the Crusades and the Inquisition and all the abuses of church and state, state power, the perversion of a church that needed state power, a state that needed the church's control over the people. Rome, what an irony. Rome, the church, inverted the cross as a symbol of divine and state power, not The tension is still with us today. Jesus is still being used as a tool of the ascendant power in the land. You can hear it almost every day when you read the newspaper. Dangerous misunderstandings and misuses of church and state, the powers, are very prevalent today. I think there's a simple question we ought to ask on this day as we celebrate his triumphal entry. Will we worship him as triumphant king or will we follow his way? A way that almost invariably puts us in conflict as it did Jesus with the powers that be. Will we just celebrate him as a triumphant king or will we follow his way? The church over the centuries has conveniently split the roles of Jesus. We call him Lord and Savior. Maybe mostly preferring to call him Savior because it's easier to let someone save you than to call them Lord and have to do what they tell you to do. 
On this day of triumphal entry, are we still crying out for power? Have we misunderstood? Are we still making him Messiah and forgetting his message? Still making him king and ignoring his call? Still making of him an idea so we can change his ideals? Have we misunderstood Jesus as Savior? Of course, we know the whole story, though. We know that the very ones waving their palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, will be the very ones in just one week's time to yell, crucify him. Folks can be fickle that way. At this triumphal entry scene, everything was falling into place to fulfill scripture, and this man was indeed the one for whom they had been watching and waiting He may have looked like what they had been expecting, hoping, and needing, but he didn't act like what they anticipated. He wasn't about power as much as he was about the poor. He wasn't about royalty as much as he was about justice. He wasn't about force as much as he was about compassion. And the truth is, they couldn't comprehend a Messiah that acted the way Jesus did. He turned things upside down and inside out. So maybe it should not surprise us that one minute they're singing his praises and the next minute they're calling for his death because what he said did not suit. They loved the idea of a Messiah until they realized that this kind of Savior was going to cost them, maybe even cost them their very own lives. I kind of picture Jesus in that palm parade, shaking his head in dismay. They don't get it, he must have been thinking. I don't think it was ever his intent to be the recipient of that kind of praise. I think he would have rather had his causes featured. Why couldn't they wave their palm branches for the orphans and the widows? Why couldn't they shout hosannas for the poor? And what about the lame and the lepers and the blind? Why couldn't someone hold a parade for them? What about the women? What about the children? What about the hungry and the thirsty and the naked? And who was doing any shouting and palm branch waving for those in prison? Falsely accused often. Yeah. I, too, would rather chant about Jesus and not take on all of his causes. It's easier, and it's much less costly. So there will be a lot of hype about religion starting today. It will last one whole week, all the way to Easter before it dies off again. That gets on pastor's nerves. But I think it happens that way because it doesn't seem like a lot has changed in these 2,000 years. People would still rather make a big hoopla about Jesus and not pay any attention to his causes. I would like to make a suggestion as an answer to this misunderstood Savior. I'm proposing 
that you get your palm branches ready and find your passion that matches with some cause that Jesus would support. And then I want you to start waving your palms in the air and shouting about it to draw attention to it. You all couldn't see what the crazy youth were doing in the back, but I was trying so desperately to find a lighter to light that candle, and the one that I found had no spark left in it. And I was going in and out of doors as fast as I could. And every time I would come out that door, the youth had their palm branches. And they were waving them just like this. And they were so loud. Could you hear them during the prelude? It was so loud, the rattling of those palm branches. And I knew I was going to be saying, everybody get a palm branch and wave them for the cause of Jesus. Amy ain't it. But it sounded like what I imagine it sounding like if we were to rattle about some of the causes of Jesus. Is it affordable housing? Or is it feeding the hungry? Or is it teaching a child to read? What is your passion that would line up with a passion of Jesus? Is your passion inclusion and the welcoming of all people? Anne Lamott says that polite inclusion is the gateway drug to mercy. And I have really been trying to practice polite inclusion ever since I read that sentence. What is your passion that meshes with Jesus' passion? Make some noise about that. Is it stopping human trafficking? Is it caring for the immigrant? Is it making a way for the incarcerated to re-enter public life after they have served their time? Is your passion forgiveness? Is your passion teaching? Is your passion healing? Does your passion have to do with health care or education? Or is it poverty? Or is it race relations? Or is it LGBTQ inclusion? All of these need a parade of palms to draw attention to the social justice needs of our communities and our world. You don't have to do them all. If you're feeling a bit overwhelmed at everything I named, I'm just throwing out ideas, hoping that they will land somewhere You don't have to do them all, but you should be doing something about some of them. One of them. But it's easier to just chant along with the crowds, Yay, Jesus! Go, Jesus! Jesus, you're the best! Jesus, you're the goat! (laughs) Greatest of all time. Russ said everybody wouldn't know that. The goat. Pick your passion and then do something about it. Any one thing about it. Start with that one thing and let one thing lead to another until it's a gateway drug to something grand. And you find yourself joining Jesus and turning things upside down and inside out. You'll see that light go off for a child who finally begets begins to get the hang of reading. You'll see the gratitude of the one 
who wishes you a blessed day when you hand the hot plate of food across the counter. You'll see the tears well up in the eyes of the one you have included when no one else was willing to say you are welcome here. You will witness the joy of seeing a family move into an affordable and decent place to live after they have moved from their car to a shelter, to an apartment. And you'll begin to dream with them, could they possibly ever own their own home? Well, perhaps if you've pounded a few nails for Habitat to help them earn some of their sweat equity, they could. You'll begin to see rehab working in somebody that stays clean and sober for just one more day. You know that I could keep going. But I think you get the idea. Pick up an extra palm branch as you leave this place today to remind yourself to wave them, to bring attention to the causes for which Jesus would give his life and then join him in the parade. May it be so. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.